Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, May 25th, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Also around the clock, on demand for free on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Everything is right there at your fingertips. GuyBensonShow.com. I'm the political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. I'll be joining the special report panel tonight in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern Time with Brett Baer and the team. So hope to see you there on Fox News Channel around 645 Eastern. On today's show, we will get to our first guest in a moment. Later this hour, former Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey will join us. In the next hour, former U.S. Senator Kelly Leffler of Georgia, a lot to unpack about the primaries. We'll ask her a few of those questions coming up later. Brett Baer, whose TV show I'll be joining, as I mentioned, later in the evening, will be our guest here in studio on the radio side, also in our second hour. And to kick off our final hour after 5 p.m. Eastern, it will be Congressman Tony Gonzalez, a Republican from Texas. This is his district. Uvalde, Texas, lies within that jurisdiction, and I can only imagine how difficult it has been for his constituents over these last 24-plus hours. So a lot to get to here on the show today, and we begin with a Fox News alert. We are still learning more details about what happened in that horrific atrocity at an elementary school in Uvalde yesterday afternoon or yesterday morning, and... The details, the more we learn, the more horrifying they are. Joining us now live from Uvalde is Bill Malugin, national correspondent here at Fox News. Bill, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Guy. All right, what's the very latest? I know the death toll increased multiple times yesterday, just a gut punch each time that happened. The latest seems to be that there are still 17 people who were wounded, but hopefully not life-threatening conditions right now. Has anything changed to your knowledge on that front recently? That's correct. So the latest numbers we have are 21 total dead. That includes 19 children, two teachers. There are 17 injuries. Uh, We're told that includes the shooter's grandmother. We're told uh, he shot her in the face and that she is in serious condition at a hospital in San Antonio. But those are the latest numbers we have. We also just learned from Texas Governor Greg Abbott that in about the 30 minutes leading up to the shooting, 30 minutes beforehand, uh, the shooter had posted on social media that he was going to shoot his grandma. Then he posted that he did shoot his grandma. Then he posted that he was going to go shoot an elementary school. And a short time later, he 
actually did it. So that was the first time we've heard that there was some forewarning on Facebook, albeit 30 minutes. I mean, it's just so chilling to learn about that. The social media posts, I see reports out there starting to circulate about text messages and other messages that may have been sent before or during this massacre. This was an AR-15 rifle. We learned that it was legally purchased. When I was listening to Governor Abbott in his press conference a little while ago, he said that there were no known mental health issues that would have perhaps triggered some sort of an investigation. There was no known criminal background for this shooter, although he held out the possibility that there was a juvenile record that we haven't seen yet. There is a Washington Post story today, Bill, I'm not sure if you've seen it, detailing elements of this individual's childhood. And it seems like there really were some red flags to friends and family. I think a lot of Americans are trying to figure out if it was clear that he was troubled, how did none of that end up on the radar that would maybe have caused some sort of pause, at least during a background check or something like that? It seems like maybe not directly contradictory statements here, but it's difficult to reconcile some of what we're learning about this person and what we've heard from officials that there was basically no warning until just a few minutes before the rampage began or began. No, that's that's exactly right. But for warning signs to be addressed, there has to be people to report those warning signs or raise a red flag, right? What we're being told by Texas DPS is this guy was pretty much a loner. They told me they're having trouble finding any of his family members other than his grandma. They can't really find any friends of his for the most part. No girlfriend, no job. Um, They say he has no gang affiliation. Basically, they say he is a loner and they're having trouble tracking down any family. So let's say these Facebook posts, were there really any friends of his that saw these posts in the past when he was having these issues? Were there people that were close enough to him where they felt that they would have reported it. Those are questions that are going to come out. But, yeah, I did read that Washington Post article. It does seem like there are numerous red flags that happened earlier. And uh, obviously it's a shame, fast-forwarding to now, knowing what we know, um, that there was nothing put in place to to stop that. But by all accounts, what Texas, is D- Texas DPS is telling us is um, this guy was a loner and, for the most part, the only family that they know of is his grandma who he shot in the face. And they're telling us they really hope she survives and pulls through, not just to you know save her own life, but also because she would be so critical to this investigation to explain what the heck happened before this shooting, why he felt the need to shoot her, and how this ended up as a the second worst the second worst mass shooting at a school in U.S. history. Bill, we got some of the timeline from Governor Abbott. I know you've been working your sources on this as well. There's been information, some of it conflicting. We learned initially that maybe the suspect, now dead, was wearing body armor. That seems to not be the case. There were rumors about how many guns he had or how many guns he used. There was questions about was he confronted? Was there a shootout with some sort of police officer or law enforcement officer before he entered the school? What can you tell us about what has been established from the time that this person shot his grandmother and showed up at the school What happened next? When did he actually encounter someone with a firearm with a chance to stop him? So we are told directly by DPS that before he entered the school, he was encountered by a school police officer. There were shots exchanged. We're told the school police officer was shot and was injured. 
However, during the course of that shooting, the suspect dropped a big bag of ammo. He then ran into the school without that bag of ammo, but he still had the gun on him. He went into the school, got into a classroom, barricaded himself, and that's when he started the indiscriminate shooting. So what we've been told directly by DPS is, yes, a school resource officer engaged him before he went inside. That officer likely outgunned probably a Glock versus an AR-15. He was injured. Uh, then the suspect ran into the school and started shooting. We're also told there were other local police officers who engaged him as well. Uh, we're told there were three officers injured in total. There was actually a local deputy from Zavala County uh, who engaged in a shootout with the suspect, and we're told he had a weapon malfunction in the middle of that shootout. So by all accounts, uh, there was some sort of engagement or shootout before he got into the school, before he got into the classroom. Once he was in the classroom, there were multiple breach attempts. There was one from local police officers uh, that led to several of the officers being injured. And then there was the final breach, which was led by the elite Border Patrol BORTAC agent and uh, other tactical guys behind him. They did what's called a stacking maneuver where they breach the door, they go in together. We're told the gunman shot at them as they came through. Uh, the BORTAC agent was injured, but they essentially, they, they blew that gunman away. They killed him right then and there. So just to clarify, he was encountered by one officer before he entered the school or three officers before he entered the school? We are told it was started off as one officer before he entered the school. Then once he was barricaded inside, other okay. local officers showed up. They tried to get inside. That failed. Then the ultimate breach happened once the BORTAC guy and the, the tactical group showed up. That's the latest understanding we have uh, from a PIO at Texas DPS. I want to ask you, Bill, about the mood of the community. I mean, I think most people could guess what the mood of the community is like right now in Uvalde, just totally gutted and devastated. Some of the vignettes that we were learning about last night are just almost too painful to even think about for too long. Parents being informed that their young seven, eight, nine year old was murdered and the parents reacting in just screaming despair that played out time after time after time. Twenty one victims, 19 of them children. Just describe how people in that community are reacting today are they chatty with reporters are they head down are they consoling each other some combination of all of the above it, it must feel like a bomb was dropped on that town yeah look everybody's crushed this is a tight-knit community only about fifteen thousand. um when we finished with our live shots last night um the mayor called me mayor don mclaughlin um, we, we know each other because we're usually covering the border, not a, you know, not a mass shooting. And he was he was really struggling with what what happened yesterday. He had two staffers who found out they lost children uh, in mm -hmm. the attack. As we were driving up here, we got word off the record that this was going to be very bad. We were hearing 14 dead. And once we got on scene, uh, when we got to that civic center yesterday, we saw people bawling, crying, leaving the building. They'd clearly just gotten some horrible news. There was a private room inside of that building where when the door opened up, you could see inside it was family members and loved ones waiting for information. You, uh, you could hear a pin drop in there. Um, it, it, it was pretty hard to see that. And last night we were interviewing loved ones, waiting to find out if their uh, children were alive. Late last night we, we spoke with a grandfather, his 10-year-old granddaughter, fourth grader at the school was missing. He gave a photo of her to us. Um, he was worried sick and told us that she didn't even want to go to school yesterday. She didn't feel like going. 
And they told her, no, sweetie, you have to do it. And she, unfortunately, we learned this morning, the family confirmed she was one of the ones who passed away. Mm. Um, there, was an, there was another 10-year-old girl last night we got a photo of. We interviewed her dad. We learned she also has passed away as well. Um, so, unfortunately, a lot of people are getting phone calls late last night and today that are changing their lives forever. And uh, the mood is very somber. It's very depressing. And I think that's part of the reason why you saw Mayor McLaughlin really snap during that press conference today. I'm sure you saw, but, you know, Bento O'Rourke interrupted Texas Governor Greg Abbott. And Mayor McLaughlin was the one who got up and yelled at him and called Beto O'Rourke, you sick SOB. You know, now's not the time or place, essentially. So he, he, he's getting hit hard by this. And, uh, he, you know, his staffers lost loved ones. There was a, a deputy who responded to the school. One of his daughters was killed. So, again, it's a small community. Everybody knows each other and everybody's going to be impacted in one way or another. Yeah, we have some of that sound from the political confrontation that you just mentioned. We'll get to that a bit later in the show. But it is really brutal, Bill to just hear you describe your interactions with these terrified but still hopeful family members who then hours later get the worst possible imaginable news about their children. Their children. Mm. Bill, I know it, it's this is not about us. It's not about you. You're doing really good work. It's got to be weighing on you. You have to be exhausted. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your reporting. Thank you for bringing us up to speed with the best information that we have at this hour. Live from Uvalde, Texas, Bill Malugin, our Fox News colleague. Bill, we appreciate it. Thank you, Guy. Always a pleasure to join you. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. At this time, we know that 19 children... 19 children have lost their lives. Two faculty members lost their lives. In addition to that, there are 17 people who are injured, but their injuries are not life-threatening. I'm Guy Benson. That was Governor Greg Abbott minutes ago briefing the media on the latest, and he really walked through a lot of information, some of which was new. And you could hear there in his voice faltering as he talked about 19 children and two adults who were killed. And I don't blame him for using the formulation, people losing their lives, which is much more passive. I heard from someone who works for the governor, who says that there were grieving people in the room. So perhaps he was trying to soften the blow with his words just a little bit. The reality is they didn't just lose their lives. Their lives were stolen from them with murder, a vicious, brutal mass murder. 
We just spoke with Bill Malugin, our colleague on the scene, in the last segment. He mentioned that later at that same press conference, while the media and the public were learning information about this mass killing, Beto O'Rourke, who is the Democratic nominee for governor in Texas, he showed up unannounced, uninvited, and started heckling the officials on stage. Blaming them, saying this is predictable, you're doing nothing, pointing a finger, things got ugly, people on stage started shouting back at him. Senator Cruz was there. He shouted back. The mayor of the town got very angry. You will hear his voice towards the end. Uh, Just a very gross, ugly spectacle and a stunt, a political stunt from Mr. O'Rourke in Cut 29. Pass the mic to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Sit down. You're out of you're out of line and an embarrassment. Sit down. I don't like this. Shooting is right now, and you are doing nothing. No, please, to get his ass out of here. This isn't the place to talk to. So, this is totally predictable. When you, sir, you're out of line. Sir, you're out of line. Sir, you're out of line. Please leave this auditorium. I can't believe you're a sick son of a. It would come to a deal like this to make a political issue. O'Rourke then went outside, and he was, of course, flooded with microphones and cameras, which I guess was the point. He'll probably raise some money off of that. I'm sure that will play well in certain quarters. I don't think many quarters. Even if you might agree with him on some policy issues, that time, that place, that setting, doing what he did. Again, my source in the room said there were grieving people there who were just seething. You could hear the mayor calling him a sick SOB. I understand people are upset. I think emotion and passion are justified. 21 people are dead, 19 children. People want answers. People have ideas. They are frustrated with each other. I think that press conference, with what was happening there, the information being imparted with the wounds so fresh, that is quite a stunt to pull. I can't say I'm totally shocked, but yuck. Governor Chris Christie with some thoughts when we come back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. Our website here is GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free every day. 
With us now is Chris Christie, who was the 55th governor of the state of New Jersey, author of the book Republican Rescue, at Gov Christie on Twitter. And, Governor, it's good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Guy. Appreciate it. I want to get to some of the primary election results last night, some interesting developments there that you and I were texting about last evening. But I, of course, want to start with the situation in Texas and this horror, 21 innocent people murdered by a lone gunman, 19 children, ranging in age from 7 to 9, 7 to 10. I would say unimaginable, but imaginable because it's happened before. And... I know that there are a lot of political differences over what can or should be done in response to atrocities like this. How do you think about it as someone who was a blue state governor, someone who is a Second Amendment supporter, someone who's a parent, someone who has had to console families grieving in official capacities before? You come at this from a a couple different perspectives, and I'd love to hear how you think through very difficult, almost unthinkable things like this? Well, the first thing you think about is as a parent, right? The, 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 the first, the minute you have children, um, your entire perspective on life gets broadened, right? And so the first thing you think about is as a parent, and you can't even imagine the level of grief um, that these parents are going through. And so, you know, that's that's the first way I think about it. Then, Guy, I think about it as a prosecutor and think to myself, okay, if I were still the U.S. attorney in New Jersey, you know, what would we be doing to try to to deal with this? And, you know, the fact is that I've become more and more convinced over time that we have to get much more aggressive about about dealing with the mental health issues in this country Um, broadly, not just the ones that cause violence, but the ones that cause all types of despair. Um, in the country. It's still stigmatized. We don't deal with it the way we should. Uh, we know that the, the, the shooter in Buffalo was red flagged um, and wasn't handled the right way. Um, and it, there's no doubt that this young man, given his background, what we know of it already, should have been red flagged as someone who needed treatment um, and needed to be dealt with. Uh, and by the way, just to jump in, Governor, just, just to just to expand on what you just said, I referenced this earlier in the hour with Bill Malugin. There's a Washington Post story about this gunman whose name we will not be using on the show, but he was 18, described as lonely. He was bullied a lot. He had a fraught home life, lashed out violently against peers and strangers recently and over the years. He cut himself with knives over and over again, including his face. He did it for fun. He sometimes would go out Uh, shooting at random people with a BB gun. He would miss long periods of school, started wearing all black. A friend says, quote, he kept getting worse and worse. You know, Governor, this is tricky business, and you can't go depriving civil liberties from people because they are going through something, you know, as a teenager or through a phase or might seem like a bad apple. But a lot of people do that sort of thing and get over it. But when you're cutting yourself, when you're, shooting BB guns at people and growing angry and isolated. You've got a horrible, broken home. That all does add up to a picture that is eerily and hauntingly familiar here. And the question is, okay, what legally can actually be done about that? Look, uh, there is a lot that can be done about that. And I I do think that 
when you're dealing with someone who has committed violent acts, like shooting BB guns at people, on others, committed violent acts on themselves, then, you know, I've been an advocate for those people being absolutely involuntarily committed for treatment. Um, guy, and, and these are tough decisions to make, but you're trying to save the person from themselves. And, and I, look, I've worked in a state and live in a state, as you know, where we have some of the toughest gun laws, if not the toughest gun laws, in America. Um, yet we have violence in New Jersey on a regular basis. In New York, they have at least, you know, close to as tough as New Jersey. We had the shooting two weeks ago in Buffalo. Illinois, where my oldest daughter lives, I worry every day because of the violence that's going on in the city of Chicago, um, particularly in Illinois, with some of the toughest gun laws in America. So there's not an easy answer to this. And the people who yell and scream today, like, you know, politicians who want to make a name for themselves about they've got the solution. If this were easy to solve, believe me, people would have solved it. It's not easy. And, but I do believe it in the, in the end, it goes back to the person. And we need to help these people not only to protect ourselves from them, but to protect them from themselves. Because uh, that young man's dead today, too, um, at the hands of the police who did the right thing to try to put an end to that tragedy yesterday. And, Governor, you know, I am someone who is uh, supportive of the Second Amendment. I'm not a big guns guy, but it doesn't matter if I'm a guns person. It's a fundamental constitutional right. I don't think that it's anti-gun or really conceding a point to say an 18-year-old with that history, with episodes of self-harm and violence and anger, that type of person should not be able to buy, as he did legally, a high-powered Rifle. Uh, he had he had several of them. Right. I think that that's something that many, many Americans would agree on that that proposition. I think that's easier said than done because you referenced the Buffalo shooter. There were red flag laws in place in New York and red flags in the file, so to speak. And sort of they whiffed on that. And the result is 10 people killed in a supermarket. Maybe the red flag law, if it existed in Texas at the state level, could have helped here. I'm very much open to that. I've seen the argument that in Texas you have to be 21 to buy a handgun. You have to be 21, of course, to drink. Why is it 18 to buy you know, an assault rifle or an AR-15? I think that's a reasonable question to ask. I also think some of the other stuff enters into sort of fantasy land where they're talking about there's some alternate universe where – you know, the bad people are no longer in the thrall of the gun lobby, and then bad people won't have guns anymore, and we just need common sense. And if you don't agree, you've got blood on your hands. We get a lot of that, and I think it really stands in the way of even someone like me being able to have a good conversation and maybe pursue something that would be considered reasonable and constitutional and acceptable to a lot of people because it's hard to have those conversations when you're immediately being called like a co-conspirator in mass murder by political actors. That, that, that is not conducive, Governor, I think you would agree, to any kind of a conversation that might produce something useful. No, listen, um, Senator Chris Murphy's rant on the floor of the Senate, um, I hope it made him feel better because it didn't do anything to contribute to the national conversation about this. Um, and I think you're right. Uh, look, I, I've been talking about these mental health issues, as you know, in various contexts, both in the context of 
of drug abuse and, and, and addiction. Um, these are important issues that we need to deal mm-hmm. with, and the country's not comfortable in dealing with them. They're just not. They want to just avert their eyes and think these folks are going to go away. They're not. And, and then that's why I'm for more aggressive action in that regard. Um, and by the way, Guy, I, I'm not, I don't own a gun either. I never have. Not my thing. Um, but I do believe that the Constitution means something and that there's got to be smart ways to be able to deal with this. And I think in a lot of places they have dealt with it in smart ways. But if we don't deal with the underlying problem, which is the people who buy these guns and use them to commit violent acts, then we're, we're never going to solve the problem unless what people want to do is do a complete ban of guns in the country. Um, that's not something I would be for. Um, just to me makes no sense. It is, and, and, and is, you know, cause I, I dealt with criminals, Chris, they got that title for a reason. They don't follow the law. Um, mm-hmm. and so we think we're going to pass these laws and all of a sudden people are going to follow them. Oh, well now it's against the law. So I won't do it. Well, this, this young man yesterday, I'm killing all those people. You think he really cared about the gun laws? And there's also hundreds of millions of guns in the country now. I mean, that's another element to this. You'd have to repeal the Second Amendment and confiscate, what, three, four hundred million guns? I mean, that's that's crazy. And that might make people feel good to say it that needs to happen. I don't think that that's in the realm of reality. And if we want to be dealing in the realm of reality, we have to talk about the very complicated, muddled factors here from civil liberties to constitutional liberties to mental health issues to, yes, firearms and guns. There's a lot that comes in here, but it feels like almost instantly the conversation goes one direction. And sometimes it depends on the nature of the shooting, the identity of the shooter. It's just it's the event. The incident itself is, of course, deeply, deeply upsetting and depressing. And the national reaction to it in some ways is almost as depressing and very predictable. Governor, before we move on to electoral politics, I do want to ask you, when you have had to deal with families who are grieving in your official capacities as governor or in other roles, sometimes those families don't like you politically. Sometimes they're angry with you. They they are scapegoating or blaming you or, or people on your political side how do you handle that when you've got an array of people who are really hurting and are maybe going to want to lash out and politics is a live wire and all of that starts to happen? I mean, we saw today at the press conference with Governor Abbott, Beto O'Rourke showing up and heckling the governor in the middle of a press conference about this, which is sort of unfathomably disgusting, uh, not time, not place type thing from my perspective. At first, when I was Watching the video live as it happened, I thought it was a parent who was upset, a family member or a community member who was upset with the governor. I said, you know, he's got to respect this person and answer this person's questions and and understand that this person has every right to be upset. Then I saw it's his political opponent, and I was like, wow, that's a decision. But, you know, there are parents in that community and elsewhere who probably feel the same way that someone like Beto does. How do you handle that? in the heat of the moment where someone's having one of the worst days, if not the worst day of his or her life? At least for me, Guy, the way I would do it would be to, you know, talk to them, tell them how you feel, express your feelings to them. And when they lash out, if they do, you have to take it and not respond. Accept their anger and understand 
that they need someone to be angry with, and that if you're the leader, you get praise sometimes that you don't deserve, and sometimes you get criticism that you don't deserve. But that's part of being a leader. And you, you just have to sit and listen to those folks and embrace them and then walk away at times if they want you just to walk away and not uh, have you be part of, of their discussion um, and their grieving process. It's, it's all about you know, showing who you really are and, and what you really feel. And then after that, understanding that you can't even imagine what it's like, thankfully, to be in the position they're in um, and take whatever hits you have to take. Governor, there were primary elections last night in a number of states. I think the one that was most closely watched is down in Georgia. I know that you were involved in some of those races down there. I don't think anyone is terribly surprised that Brian Kemp, the incumbent governor, beat David Perdue, who was Donald Trump's handpicked challenger over the whole 2020 grievance thing. That was widely expected to happen. I saw a quote in The New York Times last week, David Perdue, who was trailing, said, quote, I can guarantee you we're not down 30 points right now. Well, he was right, just not the way he was hoping he was right. When the votes were counted, Brian Kemp won by 52 points with almost three out of four Republican votes in that primary. That is a massive margin. Meanwhile, the secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, who really held the line in the face of a lot of pressure, he not only leads he won the Republican nomination, avoiding a runoff from Trump's endorsed person with 52 percent or so of the vote. So he just outright last night won the nomination, rewon the nomination. Very few people predicted that or would have predicted it even a few weeks or months ago. In your mind, what is the significance of those developments in Georgia specifically last night? Four points. Uh, let me say first that some of the smartest people I know in Georgia Republican politics back in October and November of last year told me I was crazy for supporting Brian Kemp and that they had all the polling that showed there was no way, no way that Brian could, Brian Kemp could be renominated. Um, you know, so sometimes um, in this business, uh, the, the, the geniuses um, have to be challenged, um, especially when you're someone who's gone through this. Um, and you know how people react. Second, people underestimate what an incumbent governor can do, um, Guy. And, and, you know, Brian Kemp did a great job, did things in line with what his constituents wanted over the course of his term. And then in the last five months, did things like cut taxes, pass the, uh, the abortion heartbeat law, uh, gave every rural teacher in Georgia a $5,000 raise to make them more competitive with the inner city teachers and what they're getting paid in Georgia. And, of course, last year passed the election integrity bill and stood up to Major League Baseball and Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines. An incumbent governor, people know their governor, and they're not going to be swayed by some yelling and screaming from a self-interested party like Donald Trump um, out in uh, in Mar-a-Lago. Third, the Raffensperger election is incredibly important because all those factors I just named about Kemp, don't apply to Raffensperger. His only job that anybody knows about is to run elections. So it was a referendum on his running of that election and his decision to, to certify from the Secretary of State's perspective. So this is a double loss for Donald Trump. Um, one, he completely misevaluated the political um, scene 
in Georgia and the record of Brian Kemp. Two, he continues to be obsessed with this baloney that the election was stolen in Georgia, and it's nothing more than absolute baloney. Um, and no one else is obsessed with it. By the way, if they're obsessed in any way. By the way, um, less, it, less it than a minute, Governor, way. just so you know. We have less than a minute, but please finish the point real quick. And, and so the fourth thing I think people should be careful about is the mainstream media will overinterpret this as being the end of Donald Trump in the Republican right. Party, and it is far from it. But what it right. shows you is if he continues to look backwards, Guy, um, he is not going to be a political force in this party for much longer. Governor Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, a Republican. Governor, really appreciate your thoughts today. I know it's a tough day for the country, and we're glad that you were here with us sharing some of your uh, perspective and experiences on this. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Guy. Good to be on. Chris Christie on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be back after this. Guy Benson will be right back. As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, we were just chatting a little bit with Governor Chris Christie about the election results last night. The margin for Governor Kemp in his primary victory was astounding. 50-plus points. 50. And for Brad Raffensperger, who's been on this show a number of times, to win outright with Trump's hand-picked challenger, like barely breaking more than a third of the vote, and David Perdue barely breaking 20% of the vote on the governor's side. I mean, that is definitely eye-opening. Trump cared about those races. He spent millions of dollars through his PACs. He went down there. He recorded ads and robocalls, and he fell very, very short. And I think there are some lessons there. Not that Trump is gone or his influence is waning dramatically, but a lot of Republican voters don't want to look backwards. Something we'll be talking about here for a while on The Guy Benson Show. More to come. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It is a brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. If you can't listen between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern, the podcast is there free of charge on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be joining Brett Bayer tonight on Special Report, part of the panel this evening around 645 Eastern on Fox News Channel. Hope to see you on the TV side. Here on the radio side, Brett will be joining us in studio later this hour. Fox News alert as we begin the middle hour of today's show. The Dow ends up by 191 points today, closing out at 32,120. Joining us now is former U.S. Senator Kelly Leffler of Georgia. She's now chairwoman of a group called Greater Georgia. And Senator, it is good to have you back here. It's been a while. It has. It's great to be with you guys. I want to start with the situation in Texas. The whole country is still reeling from this massacre that happened yesterday, 19 children, two teachers, just sickening. And I know you served in the U.S. Senate when horrible things happen 
Emotions are raw. It's a very charged issue. People start coming up with ideas, whether it's on guns or other public policy. Those debates unfold. What has been your position when it comes to a response to mass shootings? And what do you expect to see in the days ahead in the Senate in terms of the debate and maybe action or inaction? Well, Guy, let me say my heart, my prayers are certainly with the entire community of Uvalde, Texas, but certainly the families and the victims. It's heartbreaking and tragic. And, you know, in looking at some of the knee-jerk reactions that have you've seen play out in the media and in politics, you know, I think it's important that we we assess this not from a political perspective and really seeking answers within our own communities because we know, and I've seen it firsthand, not all the answers come from Washington. We in our communities need to look at what's not working. In Georgia, we just passed really a landmark mental health support bill to make sure that we're dealing with these types of issues, potential uh, ways to to help heal and to protect our community and, and treating those um, with mental health issues or detecting that. Um, it does not mean that we should infringe on other rights, but we have to do this in a constructive way and leave politics at the door. And I think what you saw Beto O'Rourke do was completely tasteless and wrong. And I hope that we can have a more constructive conversation that supports these families and schools. You know, Senator, sometimes I think about this and you kind of can anticipate exactly what people are going to say and the sequence in which they're going to say it, right? There'll be some calling for dramatic gun control measures and casting anyone who might dissent from that as complicit or aiding and abetting these types of uh, horrible events. And then there are Republican and conservative politicians who will offer thoughts and prayers, which sometimes to a lot of people feels insufficient. Then you'll have the response back to that saying you can stuff your thoughts and prayers. That's not good enough. We need action. And then it's like, well, let's not make this political. And then the response to that is, well, it has to be political because that's the process through which we make change. I I mean, to the outside person, and neither of us are that, right? You served in elective office. You're heavily engaged. I work in the capacity of the media realm that I do. But to, I think, average people, it probably gets pretty frustrating and angering to see the exact same patterns and the exact same arguments and the exact same cycle over and over again in these moments where everyone is horrified, everyone's hurting, and it just kind of bubbles to the surface and explodes. Is there a way to to sort of shake loose from that, do something different? You know, and I, uh, that's easier said than done, but I'm wondering what you think about that. Well, absolutely. We have to look at the consequences of the actions that have been taken. And absolutely, policy does flow from politics. And you have to look at accountability. I mean, we just two years ago went through a big defund the police movement. And looking at the impacts of that and what it has done to our cities, our small towns, what it's done to safety and security in this country, um, the the open borders and and Biden's anti-police, anti-border control stance. But yet here a Border Patrol agent stopped this active shooting. I mean, we have to get back to reality. And looking at the reality on the ground is that common sense policing makes uh, communities safer. It helps people. And we have to make sure that we have 
uh, DAs and AGs and people across our country, elected leaders that will uphold safety and security measures. And we can't forget and we have to hold accountable where a lot of this lawlessness comes from. Schools have now lost their school safety officers, their, their public safety officers, in many cases being defunded of that. Um, that's not fair to kids. We're putting kids in harm's way due to these political slogans, defund the police. It's wrong. And again, Washington is probably not the best place to start because Washington has done knee-jerk overreach time and again. Just look at the American Rescue Plan uh, in, in 2021 that flooded our economy with trillions more, and now we're in this massive inflation. So hopefully we can elect local leaders who care about the safety and, and security of our um, kids, our families, and then hold them accountable when they don't. Well, you mentioned elections there, so let's talk about elections. In your state, Georgia, it was primary night yesterday, and some very interesting results Governor Kemp just waltzed to renomination by last count. I saw 52 point margin, uh, which is an extraordinary number, given all the dynamics at play there. Uh, the secretary of state, Raffensperger, he also was renominated with a an outright majority. Uh, no runoff there in the face of a lot of pressure and criticism. What are your big picture takeaways from what happened in the voting leading up to yesterday and then, of course, Election Day itself? As these results have come in, are you surprised? What are the lessons here? Well, a lot of lessons learned, and those lessons started back in 2020, okay? I don't think we would have had this strong conservative comeback that's underway in Georgia if we had not assessed what happened in 2020. We know that election integrity matters. Uh, that is a big part of what Governor Kemp championed uh, in his, uh, you know, kind of post-2020, what he saw, what the state legislature, the House and Senate passed, Senate Bill 202, they stood up. For it, they fought for it. They stood against Stacey Abrams and MLB and Biden coming down and calling Georgians uh, Jim Crow 2.0, and that is what it means to have a strong conservative state that stands up and protects election integrity, which. Really, if, if you're thinking in common sense terms, is part of voting rights. If you don't have election integrity, you're you're trampling on others' right to vote. And so we implemented things like voter ID. And I think Georgians really saw that we have to take uh, these local elections, statewide elections, very very seriously. And and they did that. And you know what we saw is a large result of Greater Georgia's work on the ground, mobilizing conservatives. We nearly doubled, increasing 97 percent the turnout of Republicans in this primary uh, compared to the 2018 midterm primary. So we know that by taking a page from the left playbook of organize and mobilize, we can do that. And we did that at Greater Georgia. Now, not to dredge up some painful memories, but we have to politically in 2020, President Trump lost Georgia narrowly, but on election night, both you and then Senator Perdue were ahead in the vote count, but not quite where you needed to be to avoid a runoff. The runoffs happened the following January. And of course, both of those Senate seats went to the Democrats. You lost. He lost. And the data showed the reason that you both lost is a lot of Republicans, tens of thousands of Republican voters who showed up on Election Day, then did not turn out for that runoff. And the Democratic turnout remained very strong. Some of that was because, you know, President Trump was saying you've got to vote for them, but 
the thing's rigged and, you know, the votes don't necessarily count. There was mixed messaging there, I think, to put it mildly, which convinced some people it didn't really matter. They shouldn't even bother. And that really benefited the Democrats, who then won not only those seats, but by virtue of winning those two seats, control of the U.S. Senate. That's why Chuck Schumer is majority leader right now. Do you believe, Kelly Leffler, that Republicans will be unified in a way that they were not in your runoff and will be motivated and will actually turn out and have faith in the system in a way that many did not in early 2021? Because if there's more doubts and more uh, you know, disunity on the right, then the Democrats might have a chance, even in a really bad environment for them, for good reason, they've earned it, but they might have a chance if that's the case. Do you think Republicans and conservatives in Georgia have turned a corner, turned the page on those issues? Well, Guy, you're exactly right. It is personal for me. It happened to me. Um, And we did see problems in 2020, but it's exactly why I built Greater Georgia, so that what happened to me never happens again, and that people know that they have to come back, back out and vote. And that's why Senate Bill 202, the Election Integrity Act, was so important. Uh, it's it's what jo- also helped drive uh, record primary turnout yesterday in Georgia, because we made it easier to vote, harder to cheat. And the goal of Greater Georgia, the organization I founded using my business background and very data-driven, results-oriented approach was to say, we've got to get back the disenfranchised. The 339,000 Republicans that stayed home in January 2021 cost us the Senate, but they need to know that this election will be fair. And so we've spent uh, like millions of hours educating people on Senate Bill 202, but also registering new voters because we had yielded new voter registration to the left and also reaching out to about a million disengaged Republicans who had really never voted in the last cycle at all. And so we know that Georgia is a red state, but we also know we have to do the work on the ground and bring them in, not just register them, but then help them get to the polls. We even did uh, poll watching and ballot curing this time. So these were operations that were not in place in 2020. I'm really proud to have led the charge. We have a great team, and I, I have be remiss if I didn't thank all of our hundreds of volunteers across the state. But the work is just starting because this is really all about November. So you mentioned the record turnout. We've been following that. In fact, we have a little sounder that we use, a little stinger that we bring updates on the show. Let's play it for you. We're going to bring you one of these. It's a Guy Benson Show, Jim Crow on steroids, Georgia voter suppression update. And obviously we have a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek situation there. All the voter suppression that the left lied about endlessly and repeatedly over the last year plus on this reform effort that has succeeded in the state of Georgia. They said it was worse than Jim Crow, racism, naked voter suppression. And then we've been updating. How does that suppression actually look like? You know, what is it what is it playing out as in reality? And of course, the reality is totally destroying the dishonesty and the falsehoods from Stacey Abrams and Joe Biden and many in the media and others. So in 2018, the last midterm election in Georgia, the total turnout, which was a a much bluer year, of course, uh, with Donald Trump as president in those midterms, the total turnout was a little over 1.1 million in the primaries. Four years later, the 2022 primaries that we just concluded in Georgia, that number is now north of 1.9 million. 
So 800,000 more people and counting voted this time versus four years ago. The early vote was roughly triple. And this is in the face of so-called suppression. Stacey Abrams, who has stoked these embers and led the charge on these conspiracy theories, she was asked about this. Here is part of how she's trying to explain it in Cut 23. The question about voter suppression and voter turnout is causation without correlation. We, I'm sorry, you can make mistakes even when you know what you're talking about. It's correlation without causation. We know that increased turnout has nothing to do with suppression. Increased turnout has nothing to do with suppression. Uh, my understanding of the English language, Senator, is that suppression suppresses, and there's no suppression here. It's been an explosion of voter turnout and participation. That is some pretty desperate spin that I just heard there. Well, it, exactly, and Stacey Abrams actually doesn't know what she's talking about, and she's the original election denier uh, all the way back to 2018, um, and, and recently probably even said something worse, which is George is the worst state in the country to live in, which is completely false. And if you believe that, why do you live there and why are you running to be its governor? But certainly suppression uh, and voter turnout are related, and there is not voter suppression in Georgia. In fact, there was a viral story about a woman, an African-American in Georgia, that went to vote, and she said she anticipated being harassed at the polls, not being able to vote. She said it was so easy. People were polite. She was in and out. That was all of our experiences in Georgia. That's why so many people flooded the polls to vote. And uh, it's been disproven time and again. So, Oh, and it's uh, it's encouraging to see reality debunking the lies so clearly in real time so soon after the lies were told. I think that's instructive. Very quickly, Kelly Leffler, we have less than a minute to go. What is your advice to Herschel Walker? You just ran against Raphael Warnock. He is not to be underestimated. What are your top pieces of advice to the Walker campaign looking ahead to November? Well, we not only have a strong candidate in Herschel Walker, uh, but we know that Herschel has strong support from Georgians up and down our state. People know who he is. He has strong name ID. He should use that. But he should also point out that the stakes of this election and those stakes are what Georgians are facing in their everyday lives, which is skyrocketing gas prices because Warnock votes in lockstep with Schumer and Biden to make sure that we don't have access to fossil fuels, that is crushing hardworking families. It's things like policing, border security, things that he's voted against and has a strong record that it shows that he is that radical liberal. And I'd say, finally, making sure that he gets his message out that he's going to be fighting for Georgians because that's what Georgians want to know, is that I have someone in Washington fighting for me. And, you know, Warnock did not have a voting record when you ran against him. Now he does, and it is not moderate. We'll put it that way. Kelly Leffler, former U.S. senator from the state of Georgia, we appreciate your time today, the day after the primaries in your state. We appreciate it. Thank you, Guy. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are monitoring at the White House President Biden giving some remarks. He is touching on the Texas school shooting. He also spoke last night. We'll keep an eye on that. Coming up in the next segment here will be Brett Baer joining me in the studio. 
I'll be on his show tonight. Special report. He will be here on the radio momentarily. One of my frustrations, and maybe I'll talk through some of this with Brett, is some people, many people, have very strong feelings about an incident like a horrible school shooting, and that's completely human and understandable. But we have to go beyond feelings when it comes to doing something. And if you want credibility about what to do as a so-called solution, you need to demonstrate that your preferred policy makes sense, is constitutional, and actually would have dealt with the problem at hand, as opposed to not. And I feel like we end up in this loop over and over again with the same solutions that aren't even necessarily responsive, then the same retorts back and forth. We'll see how it plays out on Capitol Hill. Talk about Brett. Talk about that with Brett next. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. We mentioned that President Biden is speaking at the White House. Let's bring you a Fox News alert. Biden did address the shooting in Texas. He's also marking the second anniversary of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. He is going to be signing an executive order on police reform. Let's dip in briefly to the White House and listen to the president. Retrain law enforcement that tied to advancing public safety and public trust. Right now, we don't systematically collect data, for instance, on instances of police use of force. This executive order is going to improve that data collection. There's a lot more as well. The bottom line of the executive order includes reforms that have long been talked about or are finally implemented at a federal level. And it comes at a critical time. By building trust, we can strengthen public safety and we can more effectively fight crime in our communities. And we can do one more thing. We can show what's possible when we work together. Okay. So look, we're going to keep an eye on that here on the show. That was President Biden at the White House. And joining me now here in studio is Brett Baer, chief political anchor for Fox News. He's also anchor of Special Report every weeknight at 6 p.m. Eastern. I'll be on the panel tonight. He's author of multiple bestsellers, including most recently To Rescue the Republic. And he also has these Fox Nation specials that are out this week. And we remind you at foxnation.com, if you are active duty military, you get one year for free on that subscription. Go to foxnation.com to sign up today. It's the unauthorized history of the Vietnam War. That is out tomorrow. And then the lost ships of World War II available Sunday Busy guy. Yeah. Hey, guy. It, I tell you, it was a lot of fun doing this. It's it's really, you know, it's in my wheelhouse because of history. Uh, I did the unauthorized history of socialism, which was a big kind of success as far as people looking at it. Um, it just digs deep into issues uh, that are overlooked in history. And for Vietnam, we discovered, uncovered, looked into a lot of different elements that weren't considered back then, uh, different, you know, perceptions about what was really happening on the ground as opposed to what was being portrayed back here in the U.S. And, um, you know, it, it just gives you a better sense of how well the U.S. was doing at the end, uh, despite the overarching painting that we failed and lost. So that's available tomorrow at foxnation.com, the unauthorized history of the Vietnam War, and then the lost ships of World War II, which sounds kind of exciting as well, that Sunday over the long weekend. Brett, 
you were obviously covering what happened in Uvalde, Texas, on Special Report. You were on later in the evening as well. Before we get to the politics of it and the reaction here in Washington, you're a dad. Yeah. There are some stories that even a total news junkie, it is really hard to watch, let alone sort of push through and have to bring horrible information about death, especially of children, to viewers. How do you compartmentalize that stuff? Yeah, sometimes you don't, and sometimes that's okay. Uh, you're just trying to keep it together. Uh, I feel for the correspondents on the ground, like Bill Malugin, who was just outside that civic center listening to families you know, with the ultimate grief of finding out after hours and hours and hours of not knowing. And then they're told, and then you hear the screams in the back of your live shot. Um, you know, that you know, is is altering, um, but not anywhere near the pain that that anybody tied to that family is feeling. So I think it's important to emote, um, you know, we're not robots, uh, but also uh, do it in a calm way that uh, you keep it together and tell the story. It's a horrible story. And I did say later in the night, I, you know, we as a society, I don't care where you are in your ideology, we as a society can't let this keep going. We can't. I mean, if it is some gun solution, and I know all the pushback to that, if there is some compromise, mental health, guns, something, if there is hardening schools, we as a society have to do something to prevent this from happening. We're the only country in the world where this happens. Right. And that's the inescapable problem here. We have this unique issue where we have mentally ill, mentally disturbed, often young men with warning signs who then get access to guns and decide to take out their anger and frustrations and psychoses on other people. And it's happened over and over again for decades. It's not to say that it happens every day and that parents should be terrified sending their kids to school. It is still, thank God, very rare, but not nearly sufficiently rare because— we have these difficult conversations, so to speak, far too often. Yeah. And it feels like a carbon copy of the same conversation every single time. It does. And so I get the frustration of the people on the left who say, listen, we think the solution is guns and we are frustrated. And I get it. I mean, I, it bubbles up. And I get the frustration of the people on the conservative side who say, you know, you can't. It wasn't the gun who did it. It was, you know, the the kid, the mental health. Well, the, and and the, often, I'll start to interrupt, but I think a lot of the frustration, speaking for myself on the conservative side, is not just on the policy level, but almost immediately we start getting blamed for this. Like, oh, we have blood collectively on our hands because we're all just a bunch of gun nuts. It makes it very hard to engage in a serious way with people who are saying you have blood on your hands. Oh, well, no, you have blood on your hands. No, I know. And we always get to the lowest common denominator quickly. Yeah, real fast. Really fast. And so it takes leadership to get us above that to 30,000 feet and getting something to happen. Because inaction is an action. That is a choice Mm -hmm. that we're making. And we're now almost 10 years after Sandy Hook. And what has changed? What has changed is that a lot of kids in a lot of schools now go through what to do to barricade the doors and to be quiet when the shooter is in the hallway. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we have not changed the dynamic. 
One argument that we hear a lot is we need more armed security at schools. And the rejoinder to that is, well, they had that down in Uvalde, and there was a, a shootout, and the officer lost. He was shot, and then the massacre occurred next. So I think the logical leap that some people make is because it didn't ultimately, quote, work in this case, it doesn't work at all. So let's move on from that. Good guy with a gun is a myth. Well, it's not a myth. There's many examples of good guys with guns preventing far worse things from happening, preventing these types of things from happening at all. It doesn't make headlines because the horrible thing didn't happen. That's that's the logical break here. So you say, oh, well, it doesn't work. I don't know what they would want. No one there with a gun to have a chance to stop the guy. Right. But I think it's also simplistic for conservatives to say, well, we just need, you know, people armed to the teeth to stop the bad guys and that'll do it. I don't think that's really the whole picture either. But yeah. you, say, you say stuff like this and people are already in their corners very defensive. And I think that might explain why we do nothing ultimately. I know. And it's sad. And this is we could go through a, a list of topics that fall into this category where all sides go to their corners. You know, after Sandy Hook, uh, the late Charles Krauthammer, whose green room uh, we dedicated just down the hall, was on special report and said, if you want to do something, you have to realize that you may have to lose some liberties. You may have to lose some something if you want to go down this road of security in some way, shape, or form. And we as a society have to balance that out. Like with TSA at the airports, we decided after 9-11 that that was worth our loss of just walking into an airport. Um, you know, now when you walk into Capital One Arena, you you got to get screened. Um, you know, you can go see a basketball game and not have a gun, but you can go into an elementary school and, and have one. So we have to analyze all of this stuff and it just hasn't happened and so somebody's got to do something i don't care what party you're in you just have to do it yeah and i know you mentioned this with shannon bream last night there's already talk again about the filibuster get rid of the filibuster so the democrats in this case could do what they want i sometimes wonder when that immediately starts coming up and i see kirsten cinema has already basically said no joe manchin is going to be a no back to square one here but if you got rid of the filibuster, do they think two, two feet ahead of their nose, which is if the Republicans win a majority, which they very well, very well might, think about what could be passed on guns, on abortion, on other on issues taxes on in the other direction. Yeah. That they almost seem like, well, let's get rid of the filibuster and only will be able to, you know, be advantaged from that. That's also not how it works. And it, it just seems like people who know better say these things. I'm like, how long have you worked in this town? They're only five months away from potentially losing it. Right. So, yeah, you might get the win in the short term, but you may get it may get overturned or erased by a Republican majority if they don't have the filibuster. The Senate's not supposed to work that way. It's supposed to be that you come to a compromise, that it is the place where the discussions happen and they work it out. Uh, it just hasn't been that way. Brett, we have about a minute to go. Just your Quick takeaways. I'm sure we might get to it. Maybe not on a special report. There's a mm. lot of news. But the Georgia primaries last night, some yeah. of the other primaries, some pretty thumping results in some of those races. Yeah, Georgia, I think, was the Empire Strikes Back. I, I think that uh, former tr- uh, President Trump 
with that endorsement of of Kemp and also, I mean, of uh, Purdue against Kemp and also against uh, Heiss, against Brad, Brad Raffensperger. Thinking about this, the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, got more votes than former Senator David Perdue in Georgia. That tells you that Georgia is done with the 2020 election. They are done focusing on it, and they want to focus on the future. I think that that may be a template for Republicans going forward. I think it's a a healthy development to say, hey, let's maybe look forward in our politics. Imagine that as opposed to still fighting recriminations about two years ago and maybe a glimmer there in Georgia because they weren't ambiguous results. They were crystal clear results down there from Republican voters. Brett Bayer, special report, chief political anchor, all this stuff coming up on Fox Nation at foxnation.com. See you tonight on TV. You bet. We'll be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Much more to come, including Congressman Tony Gonzalez from Texas. Back here on The Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday from Washington, D.C. in our Tony Snow Radio Studios. Thank you for listening. There's a clip that's gone viral yesterday into today. You may have seen it. It's circulating widely. It features Steve Kerr, who is the coach of the Golden State Warriors in the NBA. And he used an availability with the press prior to a game to sound off on what happened in Texas and the school shooting. He was very emotional. He was obviously bothered. I think those words apply to all of us. Kerr, we know, is a very outspoken almost pundit when it comes to politics. He engages in political commentary a lot on a wide array of subjects with a few exceptions, for example, China. He is strangely but understandably silent on China given some of the dynamics there. And it's one of the reasons why I don't really respect some of his other commentary in other realms because he is eager to weigh in on virtually everything all the time, but CCP's got his tongue when it comes to various human rights abuses and affronts to humanity over there. Now, look, just because he might be a hypocrite or have a blind spot, self-interested or otherwise, on one thing doesn't mean that he can't be heard or shouldn't be heard or shouldn't speak up on something else. It's completely his right. He has a place of prominence. He uses it for what he believes in. Not going to criticize him for that. I will criticize the points that he makes, not him. I'll criticize the hypocrisies, but not his right to come out and speak out. I'm not going to play you what he said. You can find it if you want to. I think a lot of people are sharing it approvingly, like this man speaks for me. It was certainly laden with passion. There's no question about that. I don't want to question the authenticity of that. I think sometimes people's outrage is performative. I think sometimes it's done for political reasons. We saw the stunt, disgusting, from Beta O'Rourke earlier, interrupting a press conference about the shooting to preen. Generally, I try not to impugn motives. And I think it's probably a pretty safe bet that when people say they're upset about a bunch of innocent kids being murdered, that's probably true. 
That's how humans react. That's how humans should react. But the premise from Steve Kerr was that if you don't agree with his policies, then you must be beholden to some special interest or corrupt or complicit in some way. That was the implication, if not the explicitly stated indictment from Kerr. And I just don't believe that that is fair or true. I don't believe that it's constructive. I think it makes people who agree with him feel more rigorous in their agreement, more righteous about themselves and being on the right side of history or whatever, and all those other bad people are benighted and part of the problem. I think it feeds tribalism. I would also say on the specifics of this, Steve Kerr in his other related political activism in recent years has been part of a push, a lobbying effort, agitating to get armed police out of schools. Now, do I believe having armed guards, armed police is a perfect solution to stop school shootings? I do not. Obviously, there are places where those officers exist and have been unable or in some cases unwilling to stop something from unfolding. We've seen that. It is not a perfect solution. I definitely don't think it's a good solution to say, well, because that fails in some cases, then it must not work at all. Let's get police out of the schools altogether. I think that is extremely wrongheaded. It comes from this sort of social justice, anti-police attitude. That's where this was born out of. This is where that push started in the last couple of years that Steve Kerr signed on to. Now, if he believes having cops out of schools, schools completely rendered defenseless, that's his business. He can make that case. I just think that that is a very bad decision. I think that is a very bad public policy to be encouraging or advocating for. And he has chosen to embrace that position. I strongly disagree with it, so much so that it's hard to take seriously some of his other ideas within this general realm. If that's something that he has now championed for the last few years, something that I think would be actively harmful, putting more kids in more vulnerable positions. That's his view. I think it's absolutely wrong. And I think if you see that video of him coming across your social media feed, which you probably have or will at some point, that is a piece of his ideology, the program that he's been out there fighting for, that you ought to consider when you weigh whether or not his is a voice that we ought to listen to on policy. I think my view on that is pretty clear. We'll take a break. We'll come back. The final hour of The Guy Benson Show is ahead. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, who represents this district where Uvalde is located in Texas. He will be here live when we come back, and that is straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
It is our final hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, GuyBensonShow.com, at GuyBensonShow on Twitter and Instagram. Lots of goodies over there as well. It's all free, on demand, each and every day. This hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink. Find out more about where it's sold near you or to order online, thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. With us now is Congressman Tony Gonzalez, a Republican from Texas in the 23rd Congressional District, which includes Uvalde, which is where this school shooting occurred yesterday. And he's been on this program multiple times, usually talking about the immigration crisis, the border crisis, But today he joins us live from Uvalde in a community that is just absolutely devastated by the loss of 21 people, including 19 children gunned down in an elementary school classroom by a lunatic. And, Congressman, very sorry for your district, and we appreciate you taking some time with us here on the show. Yeah, yeah, no, happy to do it. Thank you for covering the story. Yeah, we are completely heartbroken here in Uvalde. What can you tell us about how the community is trying to keep it together? I mean, this is the type of thing that can really just crush families, communities, uh, social ties. How is this community trying to pick up the pieces after something so horrific? Yeah, Uvalde Uvalde is about an hour and a half away from San Antonio. It's uh, primarily an agriculture community. About sixteen to eighteen thousand people. Everyone knows everyone. It's a very uh, law enforcement friendly uh, town. You know, you you know, you're connected with the sheriff or a police officer or border patrol agent or a ranger in some form or fashion. Uh, I actually grew up uh, not too far from here, about thirty nine miles in a small little town, Camp Wood, five hundred people. And and honestly, you know what it feels like. Everyone is in a state of shock right now and it's almost as if like folks are zombies uh it, it hasn't settled in yet so i think what you're going to see as it starts to settle in is when things are really going to get hard and really going to get difficult you know we had a briefing at uh 10 this morning uh with uh the, you know governor was there senator cruz senator cornyn myself and some others and walked us through everything and you know during that briefing Essentially, you know, the people in there, the local folks that were giving us the rundown, they had to relive that experience. And it was as if you're pulling their heart out of them, their their chest. Again, you know, one one gentleman in particular is a, was a law enforcement officer. He's kind of walking through answering a question. And then all of a sudden he collapses. And, you know, they had to call EMS. I, I say that to go. That's what worries me is you have a lot of people just running on adrenaline. And I think when it really sits in, we're going to be, we're we're already devastated, but we're going to be very, very hurt for a long time. I did see, and you had tweeted about this, that there are local funeral homes that are picking up the cost, which is a nice gesture, but it's also just so grotesque that this needs to happen. You know, 21 humans, 19 young children. I know these are little things, people trying to help each other. Helping each other, though, in this context, which is just gut-wrenching, absolutely gut-wrenching. 
Oh, it's brutal. You know, I, I have I'm Catholic. I have six children. Uh, two of my children are elementary school age. So it really hit me. I was actually my district's really large. Uh, it's over uh, larger than 30 states. So I was actually yesterday on the other side of my district. I was in El Paso and I drove through the night. I drove eight hours to make it to this side of the district. And, and while I was driving is when it really hit me. And, uh, and it's just terrible. I mean, you never you never want a parent to have to go through that. And actually, today, uh, I made it a point to, to talk to the people on the ground, you know, the, the agents and, and the DPS, uh, the DPS troopers and, and, and folks. But I also went, you know, there's a there is a victim services area where if you you know, if you're a family member, a family member that has been impacted, this has been set up for you. And I went there to see, you know, these resources and basically going what, because I feel very powerless, you know, and I go, what, what can I do? What do you need? What, what can we, how can I be helpful? And you see the families there and it's just it's heartbreaking, man. I mean, just they, they have other small siblings there too. And you know, these families are just turned upside down and, and we need to heal. And it, it starts by bringing this community t- together. Congressman, you said that it, it's a feeling of powerlessness, and I definitely – I think many of us can relate to that when something of this magnitude happens, something this atrociously terrible. I think what some people might say, and I've seen when I was actually Googling your Twitter feed, your name to find your Twitter feed, and I could see already the, the news items, national news items calling you out, saying, well, you know, you're not powerless. You're a, a member of Congress and you're pro-gun, pro-Second Amendment, you voted against some of these things that the left wants to happen, so they, they're kind of blaming you to a certain extent, or at least pressuring you to change your position on some of these issues. I just wonder what you make of that, and what do you say to people, because I don't think it's fair to blame you or to say that you have to abandon principles because something horrible happened and, um, and, and a terrible person did something like this, but what do you say to the many Americans of all political stripes who seem to agree that we can't take this anymore? We can't tolerate this kind of thing happening with any type of regularity the way that it seems to in this country. And, and there's this cross-partisan, cross-ideological demand for something to change and for something to improve and just huge disagreement on what that should or ought to look like. What's your response to that question? What should it look like? Yeah, you know, you know, the easiest thing to do is nothing. And uh, once you do nothing, you don't really risk anything. Uh, you're kind of lukewarm, if you will. And then, you know, the, the next easiest thing to do is to blame somebody for what's wrong. And, and that's what essentially a lot of the far left crowd did was just blame me because of my, you know, pro Second Amendment stance for this, this absolute horrific tragedy. But I, I'd argue the most difficult thing is to actually roll up your sleeves and try to solve the problem. This isn't an easy problem. Mental health and the, the, the evil that is has seeped into our country, the hate that is, is dividing people, it's not an easy topic to, to, to handle. But you know what? As I sat there and going, man, I feel so powerless, I quickly realized you're not powerless. None of us are powerless. And you just started kind of interacting. I'll give you some small examples is, you know, I show up today in Uvalde and we're making our rounds kind of just, you know, talking to folks. And there's over 100 FBI agents on the ground trying to find out all the facts and details. And, you know, I did 20 years in the military. And the first thing that came to mind was, hey, where are you all sleeping? 
where are you taking a shower? How are you getting food? I mean, everyone's just working. And, and so we were able to help get some, you know, some, uh, some bedding here. We were able to get some mobile showers. I'm just saying there's always these little things that you can do to move forward. I'll, I'll go in a, a bigger, a, a different way is, you know, I met with uh, a year ago. I met with the county judge, who is a Democrat, the mayor, who's a Republican, and the sheriff, who's a Republican. We sat down at the, at the county courthouse, and I go, hey, if there's one thing I can do for the city of Uvalde, what would that be? And he goes, Tony, the, all of them, all of them go, we need a mental health clinic. They do not exist. You know, they don't exist in Texas, certainly don't exist in rural America. Like, we need that. I go, let's do it. And the county donated a, a piece of property, so that was covered. I actually was able to allocate $2 million through a community project. The overall project is $20 million, so we got 10% of it. I, I say all that to go, the way we solve this is we put the politics aside and go, hey, do we want our children to be murdered at all, period? If, and if we, the answer is no, which it should be, hey, let's come together and let's stop, find a way to prevent that from happening. There was some politics at play today at the press conference where Beto O'Rourke showed up and started kind of heckling the governor and others who were there. I'm not sure if you were in the room for that how that was received, how that will be received in the community. Look, I understand an anger and a frustration over inaction, and it's, you know, it turns your stomach what's happened, and this is an issue that he's fought on for a long time, the gun issue. There's also a time and place decision that needs to be made on something like this, and some will say this is exactly the time and the place to get in people's faces. I wonder what you made of that. You know, we had this briefing that I, I mentioned a couple of the details earlier, and then after the briefing was supposed to be the press conference, and I could just feel it in the air that it was just going to be not what not not who I am. I'm not a I've I've never run for public office before. This is my first time serving. I served 20 years in the military. I go. I don't want to stand on a stage and talk about all the wonderful things we want to do. I want to go and see the people meet with the people, talk to the people, and say, what can I do to help you? So I bailed on that press conference, and we actually went to the elementary school. We started talking to folks, and I'm there talking to agents and, and asking them, hey, what do they need and whatnot? And I, and I catch it in the corner of my eye on TV, the nonsense. What I'll say is you've got these politicians that they can't help themselves but be politicians. And they don't – regardless of the situation, they want to – you know, grandstand and do all these different things. At the end of the day, that gets us nowhere closer to this community healing nor preventing the next community from having to go through the same deal. So I wanted no part of it. I, I think we need to have more people that can look past the politics and go, I will work with whoever wants to work to solve this problem. You said that you're talking to people. We have about 30 seconds left. What are you hearing from your constituents today? Yeah, they're in shock. I mean, they're still – I mean, everybody's impacted. Everybody knows somebody that was impacted. Uh, I mean, like I said, folks are walking around like zombies, and it's dangerous because I, I worry about them. I, I was in that room. We're doing that briefing, and, and I'll end with this. We're doing that briefing, and I stop the governor, and I go, everybody in this room is a leader, and, and we're all running on adrenaline. We have to take care of ourselves and our organizations. Because this is going to yeah. hit us very hard in a couple of days. 
Uh, I mean, I yeah, the, the pain is going to linger for a very long time. Congressman Tony Gonzalez in Uvalde, Texas, which is in his district. Sir, thank you for your time and prayers for your community. From all of us here at The Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, last night, President Biden addressed the nation. The first lady was there with him. He offered some nice sentiments. He, of course, has dealt with a lot of loss in his life. No one can take that away from him and his ability to help or try to help comfort people who are grieving. And we saw some of that from the president last night. We also saw a turn into politics very quickly. I think it was off-putting to a lot of people. Predictable turns of phrase, indignation, and look, we should be indignant. But I think it was a missed opportunity for the president. I think that if he wanted to show leadership, leadership has to look different than what we see every single time something like this happens. You can almost write the script for leaders on both sides of the aisle, knowing what they're going to say and not say, the issues that will be raised and not raised, the points, the counterpoints, the finger-pointing, the insults. It's depressingly predictable. And at least to my ears, a lot of what the president said last night was indeed depressingly predictable. Now, here on the show, we, from time to time, poke some fun at the vice president, Kamala Harris. We're not going to do that today. She gave some remarks yesterday at the Asian Pacific American Institute for Congressional Studies. And she offered some thoughts on what happened in Uvalde, Texas. She was speaking extemporaneously. She was speaking from the heart. Lord knows I disagree with many of her policy positions. She is among my least favorite politicians in the country. But I think this was well done. Listen to Cut 16. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. As a nation, we have to have the courage to take action and understand the nexus between what makes for reasonable and sensible public policy to ensure something like this never happens again. I'm not sure that laws can ensure that nothing like this will ever happen again, but can we mitigate the likelihood of it? Can we reduce the likelihood of it? I think Americans of all stripes look at something like this and very much feel the way that she feels when she says enough is enough. Now, when she starts to think and talk about courage and what to do and what is common sense and what ought to be done, I'm sure there is a departure of opinion there. But I think the way that she talked about it, the way that she framed it, the anger, the frustration, that's something that we can all relate to. Part of the challenge, though, being a leader or being an adult, having a platform, wading into these types of debates, is that emoting is human, emoting is real, 
emoting about something like this is understandable, cathartic, even necessary. But emoting is also not a solution. A solution has to involve the type of wrestling on public policy that she was talking about. And again, I would guess that if we ended up chatting one-on-one about it, we would end up in different places on what that public policy ought to look like. That has to be an adult conversation rooted in reality and not just emotion. But especially in the early hours, early days after something like this, as we're seeing the photos of these young, innocent children splashed across our screens one after another, it is hard not to be emotional. We should be. How do we channel it? How do we harness it? And how do we balance rationality, constitutionality, practicality, and viscerality? If that's a word. How do you balance those factors when it comes to making public policy or at least discussing it? That's key. And I think at least last night, what Harris said was somewhat universal and useful. So because we are often quite critical and we ridicule her and all those things, I think when it's deserved... On the flip side, we want to give some credit when it's due. And that's the case here, in my view at least. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. We'll take the break. We'll come back. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It is the final hour here on the Guy Benson Show, a difficult day, a difficult week here on the program, here in this country. And earlier today, we spoke with former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie about a host of issues, including the horror in Texas that unfolded yesterday at that elementary school. Here is part of that exchange with Governor Christie. How do you think about it as someone who was a blue state governor? someone who is a Second Amendment supporter, someone who's a parent, someone who has had to console families grieving in official capacities before. You come at this from a a couple different perspectives, and I'd love to hear how you think through very difficult, almost unthinkable things like this. Well, the first thing you think about is as a parent, right? The, 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 the The minute you have children, um, your entire perspective on life gets broadened, right? And so the first thing you think about this as a parent, and you can't even imagine the level of grief um, that these parents are going through. And so, you know, that's that's the first way I think about it. Then, Guy, I think about it as a prosecutor and think to myself, okay, if I were still the U.S. attorney in New Jersey, you know, what would we be doing to try to, to deal with this? And, you know, the fact is that I've become more and more convinced over time that we have to get much more aggressive about um, about dealing with the mental health issues in this country um, broadly, not just the ones that cause violence, but the ones that cause all types of despair um, in the country. It's still stigmatized. 
We don't deal with it the way we should. Uh, we know that the, the, the shooter in Buffalo was red flagged um, and wasn't handled the right way. Um, and it, there's no doubt that this young man, given his background, what we know of it already, should have been red flagged as someone who needed treatment um, and needed to be dealt with. Uh, and by the way, just to jump in, Governor, just just to just to expand on what you just said, I referenced this earlier in the hour with Bill Malugin. There's a Washington Post story about this gunman whose name we will not be using on the show, but he was 18, described as lonely. He was bullied a lot. He had a fraught home life, lashed out violently against peers and strangers recently and over the years. He cut himself with knives over and over again, including his face. He did it for fun. He sometimes would go out uh, shooting at random people with a BB gun. He would miss long periods of school, started wearing all black. A friend says, quote, he kept getting worse and worse. You know, Governor, this is tricky business, and you can't go depriving civil liberties from people because they are going through something, you know, as a teenager or through a phase or might seem like a bad apple. But a lot of people do that sort of thing and get over it. But when you're cutting yourself, when you're shooting BB guns at people and growing angry and isolated, you've got a horrible broken home. That all does add up to a picture that is eerily and hauntingly familiar here. And the question is, okay, what legally can actually be done about that? Look, uh, there is a lot that can be done about that. And I, and I do think that when you're dealing with someone who has committed violent acts, like shooting BB guns at people on others, committed violent acts on themselves, then, you know, I've been an advocate for those people being absolutely involuntarily committed for treatment. Um, guy, and, and these are tough decisions to make, but you're trying to save the person from themselves. And, and I, look, I've worked in a state and live in a state, as you know, where we have some of the toughest gun laws, if not the toughest gun laws, in America. Um, yet, we have violence in New Jersey on a regular basis. In New York, they have at least, you know, close to as tough as New Jersey. We had the shooting two weeks ago in Buffalo. Illinois, where my oldest daughter lives, I worry every day because of the violence that's going on in the city of Chicago, um, particularly in Illinois, with some of the toughest gun laws in America. So there's not an easy answer to this. And the people who yell and scream today, like, you know, politicians who want to make a name for themselves, about they've got the solution. If this were easy to solve, believe me, people would have solved it. It's not easy. And, but I do believe it in the, in the end it goes back to the person. And we need to help these people not only to protect ourselves from them, but to protect them from themselves because uh, that young man's dead today too um, at the hands of the police who did the right thing to try to put an end to that tragedy yesterday. My full interview with Governor Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, and the entirety of today's show, it is all available on demand every day for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, often a very light segment on this show. Not today. This one hit pretty close to home for producer Christine, who is the mother of an elementary school daughter whose age lands right in the range of those murdered yesterday. So 
the tragedy took on a different complexion in her household as they talked about these things with their young daughter. We will talk about that together next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Homestretch on this Wednesday here on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our online home. All of our big interviews are there. Other elements are there. Also, the podcast available there. In addition to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts, it is on demand every single day for free. No charge to you. At Guy Benson Show, our Twitter and Instagram handle. You can follow us on either or both of those platforms. As a reminder, I'll be on special report tonight in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern time with Brett Baer, who was our guest earlier today. Part of that panel. I would imagine it will be a pretty somber one. So you can set your DVR. You can tune in live. Fox News Channel around 645 Eastern Time. Well, yesterday it was in the 4 p.m. hour that we first started really getting wind of what was happening in Uvalde, Texas. And we had a very incomplete picture of the scope of the atrocity. So we brought an update to you in the 4 o'clock hour. Then we got more information and we brought you a lot more of it in the five o'clock hour. And then after we went off the air, we learned even more information. The death toll rose again. And it was just a brutal evening. It has been a brutal morning and afternoon as the dust settles on one of the darkest days in the history of Texas. And a very dark day in the country as well. This has affected a lot of people. It has been very emotional. I think some of that emotion has manifested itself in very unhelpful and counterproductive and ugly ways. But I also understand why it's there. On all sides of the political issue, when a bunch of innocent kids had their lives ripped away in an instant for absolutely no reason, people are right to be upset and angry. I'm not a parent. Maybe one day, but I'm not a parent. But I'm an empathetic person. And hearing the stories about parents desperate to find their kids who are unaccounted for. The stories of reporters hearing the wailing and the screaming of anguish coming from families when they were finally informed that their child was killed. It makes your hair stand on end. It makes your stomach hurt. You feel physically ill. And that's just at least me speaking for myself without kids. It has to be different when you have kids. The only thing I can really think of is 9-11 when I was in high school And we lost a lot of people in my hometown, and my dad worked in lower Manhattan, and we were out of touch with him for several hours in the chaos and just not being sure where he was and if he'd be okay. I remember that feeling of absolute helplessness. That's the one thing that I can draw on, and it's not really quite the same. It's not perfectly analogous, but maybe some of those similar emotions 
were at play there. Producer Christine talks about her daughter often on this segment, the home stretch, on a regular basis, Megan. Megan is an elementary school student, right smack in the middle of the age range of these kids who were murdered. And I can only imagine how it must be in terms of the difficulty for a parent not just to think about this and sympathize and to, I think, automatically drift your thoughts over to what if it were us and have those thoughts, but then also the difficulty of talking to your child who will inevitably hear about it, see it. It's on mainstream media. It's on social media. It's inescapable. Trying to keep your own emotions in check and grapple with those, which is healthy and necessary, while also having an honest conversation with your own kid, not trying to stoke the fears, understanding that even as horrible as they are, these types of incidents remain extremely rare. Not rare enough, obviously, but extremely rare. But sometimes it's hard to feel that and be rational about that, given the extent of the horror. And that's hard enough to calibrate for adults. It has to be extra difficult and unnerving for kids who are scared. Hearing this, seeing this. Christine, how are you guys dealing with this? How quickly did Megan learn about what happened? Is she asking you questions about it? Did she hear about it in school? Is she consuming media about this? Are you letting her watch the news on this? How are you dealing with this situation as a parent of a child that age? It's a good question because I wasn't sure. She is nine, so it's not like you can completely shield her from this. When I got home last night, and I think you could hear it in my voice when we ended the show, because we were, you and I were talking, and I just said, I got to get home. I just want to hug Megan. And when I walked in, she's like, Mommy, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. She goes, did kids my age get shot today at school? And, you know, we had a light conversation about that because you don't want to get too heavy into it. And she had thoughtful questions, you know, um, and she was telling me about the um, they have like a shooter. What's it called? A drill drill. And she said, oh, yeah. She's like, I remember um, just a few months ago we were in the auditorium when it happens. And the teacher said, get behind the curtains or, you know, get under your desk. And I said, yeah, you got to listen to your teacher. But I think the real heartbreak and it was just me and her last night. My husband's on a work trip. And the real heartbreak is we were laying next to each other before bed. And she looked at me and she said, mommy, if someone comes into my school and start shooting people, does that mean I never get to see you and daddy again? And I mean, what do you say? What do you just say? Your school is going to take every precaution they can. You know, don't worry, like the doors are locked. But as much as you don't try to make it personal, it is personal. And as much as people say, you know, stay in your lane about guns or this or that, this is our lane. And it is something that I... I remember being pregnant with Megan. I was five months pregnant when Sandy Hook happened. And I remember watching the coverage going, oh, my gosh, I can't even imagine 
how parents must feel. You know, I don't have a child yet, but I'm about to bring a child into this world. And God, I can't believe we're 10 years later and I'm, we're watching this again. And yeah. it's so I mean, scary and you don't know what to do. Like, I seriously wanted to just keep her home today and stay home and work from home. But you have to live your life. She's student of the week. She's star of the week. She was so excited about that. And so we were driving to school and she's telling me about being star of the week and what that entails. And then we drove up this morning to school and there were three police cars and there were policemen outside bringing, you know, watching the kids all go in. And Megan, matter of factly, too, not sad about it. She goes, oh, my gosh, I wonder if they're here just in case someone tries to shoot us kids. And I said, yeah, they're just making sure. Yeah, it's just it's sick that kids have to think that way. I mean, the answer, the truthful answer is there is almost no chance, almost zero, that this will happen at her school or that she'll be affected by it. But when these jarring occurrences play out, you're right, this human nature, it is impossible to not wonder if you might be next or could there be some copycat out there thinking about it, and you never know. And sometimes there's little to no warning. There are red flags, perhaps, but not explicit warnings. Or if there are, they come very late. And I think a lot of life is recognizing that evil exists, that bad things happen even to good people. To not have it paralyze your life and your thinking and the way you go about your life because it's not only irrational, it's unhealthy. And it just breaks my heart that there are kids and parents all across the country who have this fear now in their hearts that they might have to deal with something like this in their own school. We had intruder alerts all the way back to when I was in middle school. This phenomenon has been with us for a long time. Back to Columbine, really. And as we've talked about throughout the show... We do have a unique problem in this country when you look at mass shootings or school shootings. These types of things do not happen other places with this frequency. And it's unacceptable and it's disgusting and it's sickening. Then, of course, the tricky pivot becomes, then what? And I know that there are strident voices who feel like they have the answers and they're very self-righteous. And the people who don't agree are the problem and have blood on their hands in either direction. And I just think that accomplishes not only nothing. I think it goes in the opposite direction. It actually harms any chance of a real conversation or anything productive happening. But that's an ongoing discussion in the days ahead, I believe. And I know you probably went home and gave Megan a big hug and – Hopefully she will be able to shake this off and go keep up her good work in school and appreciate every day. And, you know, I'm not in any position to give you advice on parenting here. I don't think that there's a great way to handle any of this. You just have to know yourself, know your child, know your family. But I think appreciation for life and family and children can really be thrown into sharp relief awfully quickly when something like this happens. 
absolute nightmare. That's all the time we have for today. Here on The Guy Benson Show, I'll be on, as I mentioned, a special report on the panel coming up in the next hour. Perhaps we'll see you over there on Fox News Channel. Love your families, love your neighbors, love your fellow Americans, your fellow humans. Ultimately, it comes down to us. It's The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.